Hello and welcome to Flavour Talks, the BSF's podcast exploring the wonderful world of flavours. Listen in to learn more about the people who make the food you eat taste great. Welcome ladies and gentlemen to another podcast by a BSF Flavour Talks. This evening we are delighted to introduce and welcome Andrea Butner. Welcome, Andrea. Good evening. <laughs> From a freezing Germany in a very cold house, but nevertheless, <laughs> I'm so enthusiastic about meeting you and talking to you that my heart is warm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so pleased you're playing along already. It's really good. <laughs> um, Lovely. Um, okay, so what we're going to talk about today is like lots of different stuff, but we want to make it real life, you know, so let's talk about like where how, how you got into science in the beginning how you got into sensory science at the beginning or, and all of your different like kind of I guess liaisons with the powerhouses of taste and smell science so I, I know that you've had a lot of different run-ins with some pretty serious people and equally it means that you're a pretty serious person now but serious is not opposite to fun you can be serious and fun and I'm trying every single day to be serious and fun. You know why I'm laughing right now already at this stage? Because I had I had a fabulous chemistry teacher in school. She was amazing. She was teaching chemistry, biology, geography, um, history, political sciences, all at the same time. And once upon a time in, in school, she said to me, oh, Andrea, you're not serious enough for chemistry. <laughs> no exactly that's a, that's a good thing though and did you say uh, i'm sorry i'm mad but mad stands for multidisciplinary agent of discovery <laughs> i was a little bit shocked i have to say <laughs> really it made me think and it, it still makes me think about it um ages no years later i'm still thinking about it but no she was she was absolutely right but i think that's the beauty of science that it is also like kind of game and that you get a lot of joy and fun from that i guess also that there's like a there's a target at the end of it and that becomes part of the game you know you have an objective and you want to try and reach that objective not confirmation bias though because that's a that's a sticky slope you know we can easily fall into confirmation bias but we can talk about that later first would you like to give a more full rundown introduction of who you are for perhaps for people who maybe haven't heard of you before with pleasure. <laughs> so, Andrea Büttner, from my background, from my original education, food scientist or food chemist, so to speak, because in Germany we have this beautiful topic of food chemistry, which actually is very interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary, because you have some basic fundamental education in chemistry, but in technology as well, and in legal aspects and in food processing and so on. So it's, it goes into many different fields. Um, currently, I'm professor, the, the head of the chair of aroma and smell research at the Friedrich Alexander University Erlangen Nuremberg. And at the same time, I'm executive director of the Fraunhofer Institute for Process Engineering and Packaging, which is not so much shorter, actually, of the Fraunhofer Society. And I'm also responsible for the whole Fraunhofer Society, which is 76 institutes in total. I think at the moment it's constantly changing. 
for the so-called lead market food as a spokeswoman. And this is a big challenge, I have to say, but it's also big fun because what we try to do is bringing together all different types of competencies and expertise to tackle the current challenges of all the different Fraunhofer institutes to tackle all the challenges that we are currently facing in, uh, yeah, in the field of food, of agriculture and, and so forth. It has a, a huge complexity and everybody wants to contribute his or her knowledge and technologies and so on. And then how to find out how everything fits together. Mm -hmm. And so is that, it's a very tricky way of balancing all of those different relationships, but also the, the sources of data and then how, how do you standardize those across uh, multiple different disciplines? You know, so like one person's endpoint might be the perfect start point for, for someone else's initiative. I guess it must be difficult to try and balance all of the things that are being created, but then also try and balance where or, or at least how to prioritize your initiatives. Do you do those, that kind of prioritization based on like biggest bang for your buck? Now, actually, it is the biggest challenge is, first of all, to get everybody to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Because everybody has, of course, their, they have all their personal interests and their, their own project worlds. And uh, first, they would need to see the need to talk to each other. So as you said, some person has this and that end point and the other person has this and that starting point and to realize that these two pieces would really need to stick together and that it is not just about solving a specific problem at the moment and not caring about the second step in the whole value chain, for example. So to, to get this connection and to bring people together that they realize that they need a whole transformation at the same time and mm. to get connected. And then the, the biggest problem is also so that they understand each other. Everybody's speaking a different language, a scientific mm. language. So just this simple word of sensory mm -hmm. science and sensory technology and what is a sensor and what is sensing, this is already such a challenge if you talk to an engineer, if you talk to somebody from the medical field, if you talk to a chemist, to get to a general or fundamental understanding. And so I have the feeling at the moment, it's more rather the first step of being a translator. It like delineate the boundaries between these different sets because I read, the, so Wealth of Nations, you know, like the rise of capitalism, Adam Smith. And I've spoken about this a few times on the podcast to, to very different people, you know, so like I spoke to Alexander Moore about, this is about uh, flavor, how it, sorry. How it sorry. Fall, falls into governance and things like this. Wait, I'm going to bring it back. I'm going to bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> so when you think about like this uh, delineating function of like you're trying to make sure that one one party can understand another party, but based on the same units, you know, so when we're talking like fundamental maths, everything needs to be in the same units, because sometimes one thing is subjective, one thing is objective, one thing is empirical, one thing is like a quantum prediction, and all of these things need to somehow kind of unify together. So I think... Yeah. Well, what I said probably doesn't make sense to anyone, even me, when I hear it again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, actually, I think I understood what you mean. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, because at the end of the day, I think we are one step too fast always to try to make sense of the different types of equations to fit them together. And we go too fast into the into the goal of problem solving, but not really working properly out what is really the problem. Mm -hmm. And or what is really the challenge. And if we would start from a completely different point, if this problem still would exist, or if it would simply evaporate like some smell <laughs> that is not yeah, needed yeah. anymore. And yeah. I think this is at the moment also the biggest challenge to, because I'm surrounded by, by problem solvers or by people who want to offer their technology especially and their scientific solutions and are convinced that they know the problem and that they really can make a big change and so to get into this fundamental rethinking between all different types of disciplines so is this really the problem that we are looking for or should we start completely at a different step for example Mm. Okay, this has nothing to do with flavor, I have to admit now. Oh, wait, 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 we need but, to check with Jan. Jan, are you, are you happy for, for Andreas wow. to, to talk about Look, something uh, I, uh, I would say so that Trevor is here for philosophical questions, and then I am uh, here maybe for a real world questions. So please carry on with the philosophy. <laughs> 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 and then I will join, okay? <laughs> Yeah, I just wanted to give an example of a problem which is maybe a completely different problem, which has to do a lot with sensing and sensory sciences, multi-sensor systems, so to speak. And at the end of the day, it is, I mean, if we talk about machine sensing, it is always very similar like to human sensing. So we have problems in, let's say, food production. For example, that uh, we have specific off flavors that develop or in the course of processing, there might be particles in a product that are not wanted or pieces, artif artifacts that you don't want to have in the processed food. So people tend to be very fast in saying, oh, we develop a sensor for that. We develop a detector to find these particles, like for example, plastic pieces in any type of food. And it is so hard, so pretty hard, because of course you have many, many people who develop sensor technologies. And of course they want to help to solve the problem and they, they come across with all the different types of sensor technologies. I can detect the particles. So yeah, but then if you detect these particles, the problem is not at all solved because still you have a wasted food that you have to throw away. And on the other hand side, maybe the better solution would be to go to the starting point and to make sure that these particles don't enter. So that was a very simple example, I, mm. I would say, but nevertheless, it is more or less the same situation every day, constantly. Um, and, and that makes it so difficult because people come to you with a specific problem. They have already an idea in mind how to solve this problem and then to turn them into another direction and to identify the right colleagues or partners who can help you solve this problem. And that's not necessarily directly your, your next colleagues. It's somebody maybe in a completely different institute who does something completely different, which has nothing to do with food at the end mm -hmm. of it. Yeah, sometimes comes down to like uh, processing or production and like to bring this, I guess, like back to food and flavor a bit more. It's like even, even the, the definition of off note or off flavor <laughs> or artifact, you know, like, yeah. 
if this thing is there, how do you constitute something being an off flavor? Mm-hmm. It's 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 based there because it's unexpected, or is it is it regularly there? Therefore, it's now it now should be expected. You know, like what is, is an off flavor if yeah. that is the flavor of the food you're eating? Exactly. Or is it just something that we are trained on just recently and that's um, just something that emerged over the last 10, 20, 30 years and maybe it was 50 or 100 or 200 years ago completely different. For example, what me strikes me a lot is the topic of insect food. Yeah, Everybody now is thinking about we save the world and, and we need to think about insect food. And of course, uh, yeah, especially in Europe, people are thinking, this is disgusting and and uh, this is completely new and it is completely unusual. But nevertheless, if you look into evolutionary anthropology, that was normal for us as humans to consume insect food. And, and even the, there are components, nutritive components that are really good for our digestive tract, but we somehow we just simply lost it. And, and still there are pieces or areas in the world where insects are consumed on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And so these narratives and this historical traits of our behavior and of rephrasing um, mm. what we accept. I think this is absolutely fascinating. I love the way that you just exactly phrased that because it's about uh, convention, but also convention being part of the trade, you know? So like, we always feel like we're going forward, but what that doesn't necessarily mean we we remember where we've come from, you know, to take everything into account. And this is this comes into to other parts of like food testing and uh, understanding what's in our food and what we constitute as food or what we classify as food, and whether something is natural, artificial, or, or not. And, uh, but even if, if something is like, you know, safe for consumption. So uh, in, in France, like I, I feel you're allowed to eat horses, you know, so horse meat is like a delicacy, you can, you can eat it. And I'm not sure what it's like in Germany. But in the UK, like it's super frowned upon, and there would be like a kind of public uproar if they found out that something uh, horse meat was in a sausage or something like that and I think partly that comes down to labeling so like a trust element to that yes. but also it comes down to like what do we constitute as being food or what do we constitute as being uh, something healthy and safe you know I always think about this as like a dimensionality reduction problem so we reduce dimensions to make things easier and then you end up with these big commodity markets so now there's this uh, a big thing even in the flavor industry of like um don't use palm oil. Don't use palm oil derivatives because then you become kind of like a, uh, you're, you're part of the problem. You know, you're creating a market for something that there shouldn't be a market for. But if you swapped all of the palm oil that's being used in this commodity market for something else, then that next raw material becomes the problem. It becomes the next problem. So, so it needs to be like a balanced approach to it. But also going back to the beginning, thinking about it diagnostically, you know, so what, let's frame the problem. Let's first frame the problem rather than thinking of these are the symptoms. How do I cure the symptoms? Like try to cure the cause. Exactly. And then it comes to these um, general questions. What is, for example, sustainable bioeconomy? 
because that is at the end of the day, the question that stands behind it. So it's not only bioeconomy, because as you said, with the palm oil, constantly you can destroy jungles for anything, be it palm planted, plants or whatsoever. But at the end of the day, it is reinventing something that can be a real pleasure. I think what we need to have now as a change in narrative is to get away from this narrative of we have to skip, we have to um, stop consuming things, we have to reduce uh, our, our lifestyle because we can explore new things, we can find new things, but we need to set at the beginning, we need to set the question of sustainability. So, and what I'm always really fascinated about, we have really huge areas in the world which are destroyed which are where you, we have desertification, where there's erosion going on and so on. But now to, to join our power and to, to win such areas back again, so to speak, for nature, and then to think, so what could we grow there or how could we get it cultivated again? Mm -hmm. And what might be the outcome and what might be the pro products and then inventing new types of products and I think this is a pretty good phase now to, to reinvent such whole ch value chains, mm -hmm. which yeah, have been somehow lost and, and forget, forgotten about. And uh, yeah, also to reinvent modes of consumption that we, that we had before, because for example, all this discussion, should we eat animals or should mm -hmm. we eat just plant-based foods? And so on, and, and how to process is all so much from an engineering perspective and so much about high technology. But when I give my lectures on nutrition, I always say, okay, we had such a type of hybrid food we invented many times already in the world ages mm -hmm. ago. So it is what you can find everywhere on the world. It is this good old uh, food where you put in all different types of vegetables and maybe a little bit of meat or an egg or a little bit of milk. And this is hybrid food. May so I have now one, uh, yeah. one, one, one basic question? Only one. So, mm -hmm. Because I'm here for basic questions. <laughs> <laughs> you are for me like a real star of flavor science. And what, uh, what uh, surprised me a a lot, I think that that you switched uh, then to uh, things like packaging. It is uh, it was for me a bit surprise, and I wanted to ask you that that uh, what uh, role now plays flavor or aroma in uh, your current work? Big role. Actually, That's not a simple now, question. This is not a simple question, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it because I think now I'm finally at the stage where everything comes together because of course when you do your specialization or in the course of your development as a scientist you always are expected to open up a field or to specialize into something mm -hmm. now of course I did that yeah because it is expected of you to do so that you when you develop to be an independent scientist you need to have a profile Mm -hmm. 
So, and I was lucky enough to choose the field of labor research because this is quite pleasant. And I have to say that I always uh, tried to also have the pleasant sides of labor research, like in my habilitation thesis, doing research on wine and coffee and chocolate and citrus and so on. Grapefruit. <laughs> Accidentally on purpose. <laughs> I also have this tendency, to, so, so to speak, to, to yeah, combine my... My preferences are also the side of hobby with the scientific research. But nevertheless, of course, it was really, I, I enjoyed it a lot, the specialization into the field of flavor. But what, what was a driving force to me always was, I, I always asked myself, so how can I change the world with that? And how do I solve big problems, the pressing mm -hmm. problems? And of course, I can't do that alone. And that's why I'm so happy now, because um, on the one hand side, leading an institute and a whole big team of the, like in the Fraunhofer Society and also to, with partners of different universities and of industry to try to get the big problems solved, which is how will our food of the future will look like? What are the resources? How to process these resources? How to ensure safety, nutritional value, and so on, and to bring these pieces together and how to, to package or how to distribute food to people so that the food ends up there where it should be. But why, why am I so happy still to be a sensory scientist? Because I always bring in this perspective of the human being. And I think this makes the big difference because whenever we, when you look from the pure technological point of view or from the pure science point of view on products and processes, then you might lose this perspective of at the end of the day, there's a consumer, there's the consumers who need to accept it and how to do, and this is my biggest scientific research question now, how to transform the consumer of today into the consumer of tomorrow mm -hmm. and not in a way of manipulation mm -hmm. but into accepting sustainable healthy um, ways of nutrition and uh, without destroying the planet without destroying some people's life and so on so this is my biggest i would say scientific question at the end of the day mm -hmm. Okay. So it kind of like a, it's like becomes like a what are the moral qualms that you have in your job initially and then think about like okay I've got one life how am I going to make the biggest impact in order to change for the better you know because yeah. I'm guessing through through the way that you've worked you've discovered things that you didn't realize at the beginning oh this this, this is actually a problem you know this is yeah. maybe something that I was blinded to um and I think that's really cool that we're talking about this because I think that flavor science and uh, flavor in general um, has a way of creating acceptability of things that maybe in the past haven't been as widely accepted by a consumer base. Yes, and to change the view on flavor science and the perspective, because when, when I went into flavor science, of course, there were many people when they asked me, what do you do as a job? What, what, do, what do you do for a living? I said, oh, I'm aroma chemist, flavor scientist. Ah, you are one of these persons putting aromas into food to make us addicted. Bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's the general situation. Yeah. yeah. 
So, oh, you are one of these bad guys. But, but at the end of the day, I think we will be an important part of the solution to the problem. Yeah, but I think it starts with us also understanding the impacts. So uh, understanding the consequences of the decisions that we make. You know, so you don't ever want to be in a position where you become a victim of your own success. And this kind of comes back to like your current role where, you, where we yeah. were talking earlier about there's so much stuff going on. And there's lots of different things happening and it feels like we're jumping from crisis to crisis. And then you, we don't ever want to get used to being uh, like kind of crisis hungry or like we know what to do in a crisis because we're constantly dealing with the crisis. Eventually you want to get to a point where actually you're reaching some status quo, some, I guess, yeah. some, some level of equilibrium. On the other hand side, I mean, the, the, the crisis of the past just brought us the richness of today and especially the sensory richness of today. When you look at fermentation, for example, and on maturation fermentation, food that has, has been stored for, for difficult times. And then you had some molding processes and some um, people realized, okay, the milk is not rotten. It is a very nice cheese, especially yeah. in France, you know? Let's, <laughs> and, let's uh, give it a name. Let's give that a name. <laughs> <laughs> let's give it a name. And at these times, it was like a, a kind of uh, inventive steps, major inventive breakthroughs due to the power of disasters. And, and because there was the necessity to continue eating and then people just realized, I, I don't die from everything that is rotten. Um, actually, some things are best, better digestible or they are less allergenic uh, or even more tasty. Surprise. And I think the big advantage nowadays is that we can do such evolutionary steps at a faster rate and we can, uh, we can benefit from a lot of knowledge that has been gained in the meantime. And especially also in the field of sensory sciences, of course, we know a lot about fermentation. We know a lot about uh, aroma and taste and generation. And now we can make use of all this knowledge and speed up the process of utilizing also a diverser range of raw materials at a mm -hmm. faster scale. So this is an, um, an evolutionary process that we have now, which is not just try and error, but it is getting a direction. And I think this is a really, really big advantage nowadays to get also a richer product scale or a, a richer range of different and diverser products. And at, at the end of the day, I think that's why we as flavor scientists and people developing new foods, we also need to be really good in communicating and, and involving people to experience these new sensations and to show them that if you, for example, eat less meat or not so many sausages and so on, but on the other hand side, you could have very nice fermented plant-based foods that nobody knew about before and which might be real revelations. Mm -hmm. so to speak. Yeah, and that's, a, that's actually something that I asked the other day at a podcast in a different way, but we, we are basing our standardization and our standards on a past that is not so so far back into the past you know so we're, we're basing lots of our standardization in in like uh commodity testing and checking things out based on something that is not necessarily that old you know like yeah. when you think about what tastes good we learn that through experience and someone obviously made the mistake of letting their milk go rotten and then going 
oh, well, this is pretty good. I might call it cheese. Um, and that's similar for, for other things, you know, that's similar for, for so many other things where it seemed to be serendipity that got us to this point. And I did quite a, it was like a, a fun thing for me to do, but I did some research into like the history of beer and how, when we think of beer, you think about something that is hopped, you know, something where they add hops of the flavor, but that all happened by, by serendipity because hops was available, but also they found through some, I guess, rudimentary uh, empirical research that the beer that had hops in it was beer that didn't that lasted longer. You know, like, so it was yeah. a it was a preservative effect. But now, yeah. if something doesn't have hops in it, now we can't call it beer. Yeah, you know, and so it's kind of like how do we make sure that you know the framework is how the game works? But let's let's define why the framework exists and mm -hmm. and find out why. So I think it's it's really really it's fun because it means that lots of things are, are fermented that people don't necessarily realize like uh, uh, chocolate comes from cocoa that's fermented or has a fermented fermentation stage uh, coffee as well can have a fermentation stage as well and I, it would be cool could you give us maybe like a rundown of your knowledge which is far surpasses ours on something that is in the marketplace that has this uh, fermentation aging kind of process that maybe people don't really know about or how it goes from bean to bar kind of thing. I'm giving it away a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we are exploring right now in the Institute some of these things. So we, we developed recently a pea protein-based camembert, which is for sure uh, we are not allowed to call camembert, I would assume, because most likely the camembert name, I'm, I'm not sure. I have to check actually if the mm -hmm. term camembert is coupled to using cow milk, for example. But uh, here, yeah, really going into different tracks and, and using, for example, plant-based proteins and making something that people know from dairy industry in a different form. And this is just starting and we'll get more and more surprised. So which types of products get out of that? Yeah, so maybe you have this fermented pea protein and then you were your aim was to create camembert, but you've actually just created like an exquisite uh, cheddar cheese. Well, then just change the name. For something that has no name yet, which yes. is even yes. much more fascinating. That's really <laughs> awesome because then you get to be the person with the, with the rotten milk to say, I'll call it cheese. <laughs> may i now ask uh, if i go back to to this uh, topic of uh, packaging and uh, flavor I, I was having theory that uh, it is uh, not so easy to get uh, funding for flavor research uh, how do you see this you have to package it <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, um, our, our packaging research is, of course, to, to preserve or to make sure that food is safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, in many cases, you have a further stage of ripening for many foods. So, um, and at the end of the day, it is also related very much to the type of packaging. It's not only, you're not only producing a specific type of food, but you need to develop this, the, 
corresponding way of storing or packaging the respective food that you are developing, which is a big challenge right now, because we are developing all these different types of foods, like plant-based foods, but you can't simply use the same types of packaging that you used before for other types of foods. And um, of course, then you can get your, your funding in such respect that you that you need to develop the respective packaging material to keep the quality of the food or to improve it with the right exchange rates of oxygen and water and whatsoever type. And um, if it goes into the direction of the, the pre preservation or improvement mm -hmm. of the general quality of the food, then you can hide your flavor aspects in, inside. Or... Uh, <laughs> or uh, Subversion, I like it. Uh, <laughs> Maybe it is health, no? Because if uh, you are combining your topic with health, I think it is much more easy to get funds, no? Yes, it is always connected. You can't separate that. It is the, the topic of health and nutrition. It is So when I look at our strategic fields, you, you directly see the connections. We have three in our institute. We have three strategic main fields. One is bioeconomy and circular economy. This is very logical to everybody. I, I usually, I don't need to explain it in more detail when I go somewhere and I say our strategic fields, one is bioeconomy and circular economy. Mm -hmm. But is everybody it, is it, have you, do you have uh, defined standards for that? So what is, what is good, what is bad? This is one of the research topics actually, because the, awesome. this big question, what is sustainable and what yeah. is not, or what is more sustainable or less sustainable than, than something else is, I would say it's one of the main research topics that we have, but not only in our institute, because this is something that we, got, we, we cannot solve in our institute alone because mm -hmm. it's so connected, for example, to distribution routes yeah. and, and, yeah. and, 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 and. So that's why this is something that we do in big consortia. Like, for example, we are in a cluster, cluster of excellence, circular plastics economy. This is six institutes working together. The number is growing and they all bring in the different types of aspects like logistics and mm -hmm. uh, new bio-based materials, for example, recycling strategies, different types of recycling strategies. Um, all different types of aspects that you need to consider when you look about when you talk about circularity and uh, sustainable bioeconomy, and this is so really complex. So in many cases, we we simply don't have the answer yet, but we are working on that. That's why it's our strategic field. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and at the end of the day, I think these are the the biggest questions that we all have. What is more yeah. sustainable, a glass bottle or is it a plastic bottle? And what type of plastic? Which environment of recycling strategies, for example? That's quite a lot that we take for granted in not knowing. Yeah. You know? So I think that, you know, there's part of, I feel like there's definitely an appetite uh, for the general consumer to know what their impact is. You know, so I once gave a talk on uh, what, what is the actual difference between having a from concentrate orange juice or a freshly squeezed orange juice, both from oranges grown in Florida. What is, yeah. the, what is the actual difference, you know? And where uh, in the world? Yeah, exactly. Where and in the world are you, are, are you in comparison to where they were produced? And then what is the, the overall impact? And I, I feel like there's, a, there's a, a disconnect between the people who are responsible for creating products. And sometimes the disconnect is because they don't know themselves. You know, we get 
there's, there's too many levels of abstraction away yeah. from the starting source raw material that you don't actually know what the connection is. So yeah. it's not something that people think about. So because it's not in the common discourse, I feel like sometimes those things become um, false truths. You know, they become mm -hmm. like uh, mm -hmm. things that people think about without necessarily thinking about the true impact, kind of what we were talking about before about yeah. uh, diagnostics from the, from, the beginning, from the beginning phase. And at the end of the day, it's sometimes even the, the difficult questions and the difficult questions for the consumer as well as for the industry. Um, <laughs> me having done my PhD thesis in citrus aroma, <laughs> that was something where I really started to think about, we take it so granted mm. to have an orange juice. And of course, this comes again uh, to this big question of availability of everything that we think belongs to our daily life. And for example, the, the, the one could think or question oneself really, when I look at my father, for example, when he was young, oranges, yeah, he went on holidays to Italy. And so that was the way to consume oranges and orange juice. Really? Yes. In, yes. in Germany as well. Yeah, oh, I mean, unbelievable. this is not so long ago. I mean, mm -hmm. if you're born, born in the Second World War, you mm -hmm. didn't get your orange juice from California. That's true. Yeah. I mean, this is like <laughs> 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 and, and, but to think about that, but on the other hand side, whenever I talk to him, it is not so much about really, he had the feeling that he, that he had no, no, no fun in life or something like that. He really mm -hmm. enjoyed traveling to Italy. And then in Italy, he mm -hmm. had these fresh oranges. And so the, the big difficult questions are then really, how often do I really need to have my orange juice every day? Eh? Mm -hmm. When it comes to the sustainability question, of course. Yeah, definitely. Then, yeah. But also it, it kind of comes back to that question of like, and also I just wanted to go that, that, he must have like the the perfect Proustian moment of like knowing how to connect the smell and flavor of that orange juice because it takes him right back to the place where he first had it, yeah. which is in Italy. Whereas when I have an orange juice now, it reminds yeah. me of um, my fridge. Yeah, it's not as um, exciting. <laughs> <laughs> What I do right now is really to, to think about much more consciously about such delivery pathways and where it comes mm -hmm. from and what's the history behind a specific food. This is something that I can ask myself mm -hmm. much more intensely. And I have to admit, yeah, I didn't, some years ago, I didn't really choose to often apple juice, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is something, I don't know, it was also some process that developed that I, I, I actually, I even can't recall how it happened that we switched in our family with my, my, my parents, my mother, somehow more into one board and orange juice and apple juice was something kind of inferior. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah, that's so fancy, yeah. yeah. And I'm re, yeah, I'm reinventing or uh, Exploring again the world of, of apple juice and regional apple juice, apple juice local, that I can yeah. buy from That's the local true. apple juice. Boy, mm -hmm. it's a revelation. It's it's fascinating because mm -hmm. I, I have these different types of apple juice that I really buy now directly from somebody who produces it in a 
it's fascinating. It is really beautiful. Yeah, so, yeah, like you could pick the apples yourself. And that's that's yeah. actually something that I was going to ask you about some of the, uh, maybe this is a tough question to answer, but, but you know, at the beginning, we were talking about like a confirmation bias. And at the end of all of these like nice, moralistic, sometimes altruistic decisions that you make personally, um, there is at the end of the day, people got to get paid, you know? Yeah. So like you need to find the funding. And Jan was asking you about like how difficult it is to get funding for some research that maybe you're interested in and you think mm. obviously it was a joke to subversively work on flavor research even though the the pinnacle was trying to find a a, a better packaging um but it's true you know like at the end of the day you you need funding in order to carry out fundamental research and mm. that fundamental research is at least partly directed based on the questions being asked of you yeah and I try to do a diversification of the research questions or to nourish or nourish these uh, research questions and to question our, yeah, so to speak, our, our social and economic system to some extent. And I, I would never dare to say this and that way of producing foods is bad or good and this type of industry is bad or good. I think we need all different types of variations of forms of food production. It guarantees our resilience of food supply at the end of the day. So we need little supply change or little companies contributing, farmers who are more engaged or directly connected to not only having the crop, but also to maybe in, in joint settings mm -hmm. to have further processing, to have regional distribution. But also on the other hand side, I, I'm pretty convinced that we also need bigger types of industry, for example, in the field of biotechnology in food production to guarantee main fundamental delivery of um, availability of nutritional mm -hmm. ingredients, yeah. components. So I think it is not either or, it is all at the same time, so to speak, and depending on the regional situation that we have. So on what we, what we need to get rid of is all these long chains of transport between <laughs> all the different types of um, raw materials further processing and carrying all around the world but to really um, think of about better concepts this is the situation in this country here we have this and that crop for example and how to utilize it to further produce and really to, to have a diversification of different types of solutions. And then at the end of the day, we will have a lot more people who will be engaged in the value chain and, and make their living because we have this diversification of production and of, of different types of products. Mm -hmm. it, sounds, it sounds like your consortium, at least your consortium, but probably all of us, and need a, a food-based graph neural network in order to connect the dots, to be able to, to query the entire network based on needs from individual perspectives within that ecosystem. Yeah, this is the perspective of trying to get as the overview of all or like a control of all. I would like to question that. Yeah, yeah, cool. Go for it. I thought that you <laughs> Do might. Do it. Because it's <laughs> <laughs> the, Hit him. The 
between <laughs> top down and bottom up and yeah. maybe it's both at the same time because what I'm always a little bit worried or afraid if somebody wants to get the overview of everything and the kind of the control and to um, is it rather setting standards general standards uh, and getting a general agreement on fundamental aspects of our economic system that we should like a moral or so social mm -hmm. framework that we should set and then bottom up everybody tries to translate that into business models and economic systems and, and i guess into value for themselves and so yeah. I, I i said the question i'm gonna say i did it by design you know to make sure that it was like if like a fishing and you caught the hook um but it wasn't by design <laughs> it was just a happy accident so I, I I don't necessarily see it as uh, top down bottom up. It's more <laughs> it's more plateau, you know. Where um, and, and this is kind of part of the principles of Web three, you know, like on some of those fair interoperable um, applications that people can use, but you can use it based on your involvement. So mm -hmm. what you give is what you get. Um, yeah, and my theory is that this will have one big challenge. It functions if everybody in this network um, follows the same path and has the same standards or norms and exactly. agrees on the same. And our biggest enemy in this system is what? My question I, to you. Uh, intellectual property and patents. What's the emotion behind it? Oh, greed. It's my theory. My. <laughs> My, my, my perspective of that uh, and also what, what I see what is the biggest roadblock or the biggest obstacle when I try to get people to work together and to jointly develop something at the end of the day I'm absolutely convinced it's fear okay yeah because it's something new fear to not to to be successful enough and or to lose knowledge or, or anything uh, to lose benefit to lose revenue mm. um, The, the basic fundamental principle also in my opinion to some extent why we always try to guarantee success by patenting and 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 mm -hmm. but I think um, just from my daily experience the the people whom I'm best collaborating with or where we, where we have biggest fun to collaborate with is usually those who have no fear of losing something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And who yeah, can yeah. share ideas, who are able to share because they are not in a critical situation. And that's why I think this is such a dangerous phase at the same time that we have now. We have this chance of inventing new things due to all this crisis situation to get creative, to get innovative. Mm -hmm. But there will be much more people who are fearful. Especially for value creation. Like every the, the whole... The, the point now is like, uh, how do we create value now? Because we want to return on investment now uh, yeah. without necessarily thinking about maybe the return on investment is longevity. That's yeah. like, you don't get disrupted because um, you were able to still have the crops that yeah. enable you to eat. Um, mm -hmm. what, let's, let's use this as a, I guess, like a, a preordained thing and uh, start eating tasty Uh, products made from insects now so that later on we don't get uh, shocked by the thing of there's only insects left <laughs> <laughs> <Love that. laughs> yeah. yeah yeah exactly
yeah yeah it's it's quite it's quite crazy to think of all of these things and how they're very much connected but that's another reason why i think the the flavor industry um has a a strong role to play you know people sometimes ask me um you know if i'm talking to them and I, they ask me uh, oh so what do you do as a job and you go you're a i'm a flavor scientist yeah and then the first thing they go sometimes is or oftentimes is oh you make all that food addictive and i go no you just love it because i made it so well <laughs> Okay. Um, and they don't believe me because they go hang on i know this guy he can't make anything good <laughs> yeah but this is, is really interesting because i have to it's a bit shameful i have to say whenever somebody asks me about my special expertise i don't say anymore that i'm a aroma chemist or a, a flavor chemist why no i don't <laughs> <laughs> you're like no, the best why? one you're like one of the best ones yeah, yeah but um, because if I, if I listen to myself very carefully, at the end of the day, what I'm, I've been always most interested is in better understanding people and their sensations. I would rather say I'm not a flavor scientist or aroma chemist, more like somebody um, trying to understand our sensations, our way of learning, our way of um, experiencing the world and, and adapting to the world. So it's what, what drives me is the, the um, acceptance of our current world, of products and our adaptation to a changing world. And um, now, okay, this is now the revelation. What? <laughs> <laughs> breaking news, everyone, breaking this news. Is a revelation, <laughs> but at the end of the day, what, was, what has always been the most fascinating research field or area to me, and what I kind of think that I originally have been and took sensory sciences as a path to further develop, I was fascinated in my studies from evolutionary anthropology evolutionary anthropology of and i nearly did my phd nearly in the field of evolutionary anthropology but the evolutionary anthropology which looks into the past mm -hmm. like investigating genetic materials and so on and how humans develop to be like humans as they are today and i didn't do this phd in this evolutionary anthropology which goes into looks back into the past and I didn't know at this time why, because, uh, and I just realized now that I'm much more fascinated about how are we as humans today, sensing, mm -hmm. perceiving, le learning, appreciating. And, but the much more interesting question to me is evolutionary anthropology into the future. Okay. We, we, we take it so granted, as so granted that as we are today, that we don't change, but of course we change and we change with our sensations and our appreciation and everything. And my big question, while um, pursuing research in developing new products, new ways of production, new foods, whatsoever, is how will we change as humans into whatever type of organisms in the, mm -hmm. in the future and what will be our sensory interactions? Yeah, no, exactly. And the point is that, that never stopped. You know, we assume no. that we stopped, but it's because we're a small fraction of this is our life. And even mm -hmm. as a as a as a human being, if you get to to like our ages, you, you're constantly changing. You know, so 
Yeah. I, I always like to think of like the, the way of like, uh, do you know this, this idea of Theseus's ship or a trigger's broom? You know, the, the sky with the broom, you change the head because it's, it got old and then you change the handle. Is it the same broom? And then mm. in a way, that's all of us, you know, our, our cells aren't the same as they were when we were born. And there's a, a small fraction of us that may remain within us, but we are constantly changing. We're constantly evolving and our experiences change who we are. Do you know, like this, this, <laughs> those sayings of you are what you read or you are what you eat. It's like yeah. fundamental. You are what you eat because your experience of your environment changes depending on your environment and your ability to perceive different things within that environment changes depending on what's available. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's really cool. And I know that Jan wanted to ask you some um, hard hitting factual questions. Basic but, question. Um, <laughs> no, it, 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 this is a simple explanation why yeah. I would never say I'm a flavor scientist anymore because yeah, I, I would say I, I try to understand us as humans. I think it's awesome. It's really cool. So I do have a, I, I was shocked to say like, uh, why Andrea Butner, like you should definitely say that you're a flavor scientist because you're like the best, you're one of the best of us, you know? So we all look to you to be like our guiding light. But when some people ask me and I don't really feel like explaining and maybe I'm not in a super chatty mood and people say, what do you do for a living? Sometimes I do say, I reenact medieval battles. And then they go, right, uh, cool. And then they move on. I have a question about your research. Um, one line in it caught my attention as um, there are papers dealing with uh, transfer of aroma chemicals into breast milk or about uh, volatiles released from plastic toys. And it seems to me that uh, you don't forget your nose in the laboratory. And when you are at home or with your children, uh, you find challenges or inspiration for flavor research in your private life as well. And this, by the way, happens in our profession too. Also, this is, I have constantly this merging about um, private or personal experiences where I question myself, what is that? And of course, it is also a little bit about um, thinking about how can I package my research <laughs> to get funding, <laughs> I have to admit. Like, uh, for example, the, the, the story of breast milk. I have to tell you very openly that was a bit funny. It was at the end of my PhD. And it was clear to me that I want to do further research. I want to do a postdoc. I want to go into habilitation thesis. And, but I, was, um, I didn't have any funding to do research. So, and there was a call, um, exactly at this point, a call about that was about the early phase of flavor or of, of the, um, how, how babies, how infants are primed on specific nutritional preferences. Mm -hmm. And so was, was that based on markers, markers of nutrition in nature? So like, like better, sensory better qualities? Understanding, better understanding what happens in early life so that um, children develop specific preferences for specific foods. That was in this period of time where people always thought, so what, what are the drivers why, why children 
prefer fast food or, or vegetables mm -hmm. and so on. And, and one wanted to know about these questions. Of course, that was also interesting to me, but what was also interesting to me was a better understanding of metabolization processes in the human body. And I was thinking at the same time of how could I get windows into the body to better understand how substances and especially like flavor substances ah, are okay. And of course, everybody thinks about urine and so on. And then um, it, it converged and being mother at the same time, it converged because I thought, uh, but hang on, I read these articles where somebody stated that aromas go into the milk. And is it really true? Can it be true that aromas really just simply enter from the food all through the stomach and everything? It doesn't yeah. make sense to me as a chemist, I have to say. Or and a biologist chemist, that doesn't, yeah, the, it, surely there is some transformation that happens. There's uh -huh. surely some transformation and then everything uh, fell into place, so to speak. And I thought, hang on, I could sell this as a story to the funding agency. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I could sell it with the label. I want to understand um, flavor preference formation mm -hmm. via mother milk. But yeah. actually, I could gain some insights in some, into uptake of mm -hmm. aromas and metabolization and how this is excreted by urine and milk and to get a better understanding of metabolization. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Because, you know, like there's, there's a lot of research that's done like um, <clears throat> out of the body on metabolomics, you know, like on how things yeah. are produced in plants in the first place. So why they smell like they do and how to change maybe like uh, <clears throat> the agronomy of, of how you're growing something or maybe like post-production harvest, uh, post-production of that fruit, food stuff. But I feel like we don't necessarily understand what it actually does for us. And this actually comes back to something that uh, Professor Peter Shebele, uh, which we'll go on to in a, in a minute, um, he was discussing as well about the fact that all flavor molecules, all of these like uh, odor active molecules, and even if it's not necessarily odor active, these things are obviously bioactive. They have to be bioactive because exactly. they have to be binding to something in order for us to perceive yeah. them. Mm. You know, so there's a way of us perceiving them. We're not just perceiving them in part like, they, they brush up tangentially and then exit. There is, there is some biological process that enables us to detect them. So it's about trying to understand, I guess, what happens with these molecules when they're in our body yeah. and what is the, I guess, downstream effects of these things, not, not just in a, in a clinical biological way, but also in a, like a holistic um, emotional way. That was one of the driving questions to me is, on the one hand side, the pure sensory effect, but then also to some extent, a kind of pharmacological effect, mm, yeah, which mm. was fascinating to me because clearly we can see that humans consumed in the past and, 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 and apes and monkeys and, and mm. everything consume specific plants, which are very intense in aroma and smell or in taste, which have other effects, obviously. And that was also something that was interesting to me. Like for example, uh, neurotropic action. Do substances somehow work on the central nervous system really in a way of pharmacological effect? Being married to a pharmacist, of course, this is something. <laughs> that, uh -huh. So this is... Oh, well, no, no, no. <laughs> Did you just package the question really well? <laughs> you wanted his insights. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I, I really wanted to have the also a clear differentiation because I think often things are so much mixed when so it's so often as a flavor or aroma chemist you're asked for emotional or for psychological effects so often mm. that people come to me and say do you have a smell that is sedating or calming or um, raising excitement or whatsoever chloroform is the most sedating smell ever like every wow. time i smell it pass out <laughs> <laughs> but then it was always like is it a sensory effect really or is it a pharmacological effect mm. and if so how is uptake and how is biotransformation and is the inter-individual differences which you all of course um, take care of when you do pharmacy when you when you do research in pharmacy this is all the typical steps that you research as a pharmacist mm -hmm. and that was always so striking to me that uh, all these classical pharmaceutical steps that you would regard for medicine um this is not so much uh, or has at that time not been taken so much care of of course because it's also much more difficult to publish and or to investigate because you have maybe more long-term effects and not mm -hmm. these clear, like with a medicine, you can easily measure a pharmaceutical effect. But if you have something that is more a lifelong exposure mm -hmm. and what does this with you as a human in terms of transforming you into another type of individual as we discussed before. Well, that's sometimes limited as well. And sometimes also suffers, suffers from yeah. the same uh, dimensionality reduction um, like problems you know so there's there's many medications on the market that don't necessarily affect everyone the same way yeah like we, we already know that but yeah. um, we're always looking I guess in terms of harmfulness in those mm -hmm. tests as well we're looking for effectiveness because what's what's the point of um, producing uh, the emperor's new clothes you know like painting with invisible paint no one's going to do that but um, I really like the track of like how you think about it because it, I guess it leads us to some at least a sense of how do we then create a personalized nutrition you know based on based on the individual what is a good food we obviously experience something based on our own history our own personalized history of what mm -hmm. we think is food what we think is not food and also how it affects us is partially based on our own genetic makeup and in which period of life, because that yeah. was then very striking to me when I read these articles, okay, aromas pass through human milk and can yeah, pass to the, to the newborn. And I was really, I was puzzled when I read these articles because it was all about priming infants or babies on flavor experiences and acceptance in later life. Mm -hmm. And I was so puzzled because there was not the question, okay, these are bioactive substances taken up by a newborn. Could there be any other physiological effect on the newborn? Like, for yeah. example, the mother ate something and there's tuyun in it. It's an aroma yeah. chemical. And uh, mm -hmm. tuyun, you know, uh, <laughs> should be regarded a little bit with caution. Dangerous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then it was really... Of course, it was also connected to personal experience, daily life. For example, I had a cold, yeah? I, I did all this research on breast milk and mother's milk with my team. And I had a cold and I went to the pharmacy and said, I have a cold, but I'm breastfeeding. What can I do? Ah, just take this medicine here. Um, <laughs> it's one of our publications, I have to say. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> this is safe. It's safe because it is... Um, 
natural. Oh, killer, killer. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And at the end of the day, I mean, it's it's menthol and everything, all these uh, yeah. things that are, it's, um, there's a hang on, eucalyptol, yeah, highly yeah. concentrated in this capsule that you swallow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no problem. It's natural. Doesn't do anything with your milk. Hey, this is a nice research topic. And that's why we have yeah. these publications. Because I, I went to my group and said, hey, do you need some... You <laughs> do you need some breast milk? <laughs> <laughs> let's, see, let's see. I will swallow these pills and look at my... <laughs> I want to know that. And then it was really like that. At the end of the day, it was like that. We had a, a beautiful eucalyptus milk. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I, I would I would say, oh, I'd love to try some of that. But I feel like that's we're not that close. We're not we're not super, super close. You know? But it sounds <laughs> but lovely. Coming coming back to the story of toy smell. Yeah, that was again such a situation. I, I would say I, I'm maybe a little bit always regarding very carefully my environment. And so my children were born and everybody came with presents and grandmothers and grandparents, you know, as it is when you have young children. And then they brought this stuff where all, all the living room was stinking like mad. Plastic. It was not, mm -hmm. I mean, this was, we had some products. It was not like that, that I got some of these toys with my family and was sitting there as the flavor came so, mm. Can I smell something? Mm -hmm. No. We put it somewhere into the living room and the whole room was stinking like mad. Uh -huh. And of course, then I was curious to know what is wrong there. Yeah. And it was really, it was enormous amounts of residual solvents in the gram range. This, yeah. It was, yeah, that was so striking. I could, <laughs> it couldn't elapse my nose. But also that's kind of part of the standardization as well, because people yeah. start to now then get used to that, you know, like uh, pool toys and things like that. If you don't have an, uh, a um, regulation or a kind of a governance, at least, of producing these kinds of things, then the, the normal consumer would just find that eventually it might be off-putting. But then if you don't really have the understanding, well, this is how it is. Even worse, these things are not questioned. Like, for example, in the case of breast milk, oh, it's flavor imprinting. Yeah, but mm -hmm. might it have a physiological effect? Mm -hmm. mm. The, 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 these questions are not asked. And then mm -hmm. like um, pool toys or all these swimming devices. Yeah, everybody said to me when I, when I raised their attention, yeah, but this is the typical smell. It smells yeah. like that. Yeah. It has always smelled like that. Nobody ever came to the idea to think about it. Everybody likes it. No? Even that, because it's Swedish, <laughs> it is kind of Swedish. And, and um, when I look into other fields, we do a lot of research currently also on automotive smells, new car smell, and so on. Uh -huh. Yeah. Which is really interesting because it has a cultural perspective as also mm -hmm. at the end of the day. So in Europe, people like new car smell because uh -huh. they have the impression that the car is really new. And if it doesn't have the new car smell, they um, they expect to smell mm -hmm. like a new car. Mm -hmm. In China, it's completely different. You couldn't have yeah. a new car smell in China. It's not accepted because there it is rather the fear that there is something toxic because there's not really such the trust that it is produced in a way oh, really? that it's but, reliable. But blind trust, blind trust, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so we started to investigate these things. And actually it is like that. You have, for example, leather. 
leather smell. Mm. You have um, leather products from all around the world that you really don't want to smell because um, <laughs> it is typical leather smell, but the constituents. Yeah, some of the some of the tanning ingredients, the ingredients used to tan the leather, aren't yeah. really great for you at all. Uh, exactly. And the mm -hmm. funny thing is, I started thinking about that due to another Fraunhofer Institute, and it was a very very weird situation because it was a materials engineering institute, and mm -hmm. we ex we uh, visited this other institute, and they told us, ah, oh, we do leather, but we found a process where it doesn't smell. I said, hang on. I never thought about it. That's possible to produce leather without a smell. Um, but actually, it is also questionable because people don't expect it or they, yeah, don't, yeah. they, want, yeah. they don't want. But at the end of the day, it's possible to produce leather without a smell. It is just the narrative or the historic trade from the past that we expect leather to smell like leather. You know, people uh, like the smell of new uh, but it is it is it is a mark that this is this is a new product and no? genuine kind of yeah. thing yeah. genuine yeah yeah but it, it's like again what we're talking about is this uh, semantic serendipity train mm -hmm. you know this is what we call stuff and this is what we expect to be convention but mm -hmm. it's all happened by chance maybe for a different reason yeah i think it's awesome it's really cool that's why, that's why i'm also fascinated about this project that we have the, and did you hear about the odo europa project or yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and it, it's, it's so fascinating because we work together with completely different disciplines and looking at smell also from a different angle, like from linguistic perspective or how can mm -hmm. we smell coded in pictures and mm -hmm. in really? paintings. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you, so would you are you are you thinking of like a a methodological approach that kind of goes on like uh, semantic similarity by um, vector relationships? Um, yes, this is, but this is not the part that we are doing, that is the part that others are doing, and especially those which are using also um, all these fancy techniques in NLP and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. But the funny thing is also a linguistic perspective. We, we talked about the citrus before, you remember, we talked yeah. about the, the citrus, um, mm -hmm. and it is so clear for us if we describe a smell for example, with a connotation of citrus or of frankincense or whatsoever type. But when you investigate smell description of a specific item 500 years ago, you really need to look into history if people had this material. The lexicon. Hand yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they had it. Yeah. Because they didn't <laughs> even know it. Maybe, maybe this was a period where they didn't use potatoes or they couldn't relate <laughs> anything that smelled like methional to potato mm. because they did no potato yeah so that's, that's so that's amazing and that's in a way yeah. that comes back to other things that you're talking about before but like the metabolomics but actually the metabolomics is pointless if you're thinking about something in the past because it didn't exist i was actually reading something yesterday um on the origin of uh it was actually how food changes or describes the class structure in the united kingdom and how it has done for several centuries. You know, how the way that we eat and what we eat uh, kind of really depicts what class of people uh, you're in and whether that's uh, socio-demographically related to uh, like uh, financial wealth or, uh, or power 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like what, what did royalty used to eat and what did uh, uh, poor people used to eat? Yeah. And mm-hmm. it all came down to what was available. Now, here was an interesting thing that came up that I, I never really thought about long enough to, to think how maybe this could be significant. But they've been selling pasta. So like pasta that we all assume started out in Italy. They've been selling pasta far, be, far, far before, like hundreds of years before they ever even discovered potatoes in South America. Mm-hmm, now, mm-hmm. if you think about the potatoes, potatoes considered like the national food of Ireland and also the British Isles, mashed potato, roast potato, chips, every kind of potato. But actually they've been eating pasta for way longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense because they always had bread and stuff like that. But when you put it into like a, a into context with a, like a temporal context with mm-hmm. a linear, arrangement you you kind of get how striking that is how far apart they are mm-hmm. you assume that like at the same time and that's happening with lots of different foods all over the place yeah. like expecting to see a pineapple in the in the shops is like a very recent thing mm-hmm. yeah. now we can see a pineapple in the shops all year round when it's very weird it's a it's a mm-hmm. super super yeah. unnatural thing to yeah. be available that's true and we are we tend to forget very fast such experiences i i really have clearly i remember this situation when i went with my mother to a shop i don't know how old i was and i saw the first time in my life a kiwi yeah and i really remember clearly this situation and nowadays if i would say to my children uh, the fruit or the person the from day where i first time in my life saw a kiwi and had never seen it before yeah. kiwi <laughs> is it a bird <laughs> <laughs> is it a bird yeah. yeah is it someone from new zealand <laughs> yeah yeah it's it, but it's amazing and to think also that availability seems to be like plentiful like we have a plentiful uh, supply of ingredients and raw materials and we expect those things to be there mm-hmm. but there's a wealth of materials and ingredients from our past that are right here local that have kind of just been forgotten about that they had an appreciation. You know, we're just not used to seeing them anymore. They've jumped off the semantic serendipity train. I think I need to coin that. (laughs) And I I, I love that you said we have a wealth of materials. And I think we, we are at a point where we also really need to rethink and carefully rethink what is wealth, which mm-hmm. type of wealth, and what is well-being. Because I think that a big problem nowadays is that this is mistaken, wealth and well-being. Yeah. So very often I hear, for example, with this in the mission of Fraunhofer Society and our research and also what we do in the universities is keep our wealth status mm-hmm. and what does it mean yeah everything needs defining yeah. i have my house i have my car i have two yeah. cars three cars maybe i have orange juice every day orange and juice every it, day and a jet ski and is it well-being yeah hmm. it's amazing to re to reframe it to reframe it yeah. and then ask the same question again and there was an interesting article i read uh, with the title that is like amazing like when i read the title i was like it gets you thinking and it's it's now become a kind of a famous article and i'll send it after but the article is called um um the the nature of value and the value of nature 
yeah so mm -hmm. to think about what what is nature what is the value of nature but then also what is the nature of value so it's kind of like a pun to say like what what do we value and we always put it with a a currency symbol in your mind but that's just because of conventional thinking yeah of like value coming from either your time because time is money and uh money because that is wealth that you can buy other stuff but it I think it's it's really good to reframe the question in order to like ask better questions. Mm. Yeah, really cool. Can we ask you some? We we try and do this sometimes, and they're like quick fire questions. Yeah, so they're quick fire questions from the chat, and it would be good to get your insight onto them. But the first question: Do you think that the lawsuits that are going on at the moment, due to uh, research into COVID nineteen, and the open source availability of the results therein? Do you think that the lawsuits will hinder more collaboration like this in the future? You know, open source data sharing. The lawsuits? No, I don't think so because it, it raises awareness and that the topic is more intensely discussed and that people more proactively now really will consider open source and, and sharing of data. And they will, but they will regard more carefully their sources of funding yeah yeah no that's a fair point as well and I, I also sometimes think that like at the end of the day there needs to be we need a way of valorizing open source information you know mm -hmm. so there needs to be a way of uh engagement in a standardized way that enables people to work philanthropically with their time in order to produce things that are good for the many not just for the few yeah and that's and kind of the lot, altruistic nature of it, I guess. And I think this has so much more to do with the reconsidering the other possibilities of appreciating contribution. Mm -hmm. So to find ways how maybe not from official funding sources, but really from other different types of like crowdfunding or anything yeah. People are supported in, in their research in what they do. That there is more like a rather a general understanding that something is valued better and supported better by the common research community. I still really think we, we need to reinvent also the funding system. I think this funding system is now at a point where, where, where it has its absolute limitations. It's a benefit system on what people achieved already, but it is not risk supporting. It is not supporting young researchers. Mm. There's a real discrimination of young researchers. I have to say, I'm in many, many of these panels where it is about um, how funding is distributed to different types of scientists. And I see this every day that it is um, this KPI driven evaluation of scientists. So how many publications did he mm. or she already achieve? Mm -hmm. um, do we trust that we, we this person will get these and that results? And this needs to change. And then you value them because of that. You know? So yeah. you're valuing yeah, and the, that. the effect that I see every day, which is a completely unfair effect, but I see it every day is the older the people get and the more they compiled in terms of knowledge and in terms of publications, the more funding they get. Mm -hmm. So we should actually reverse it to be like a Benjamin Button situation. So you support the people who need the support and yeah. let 
Yeah, I, I think there needs to be a balance as well, because obviously with uh, greater experience and greater expertise comes a, a degree of um, like honorability. You know, so people, I, I get what you're trying to say is that people that are, that have lots of publications have this um, list of publications as a kind of like a value, a mark of value. But if no one else gets an opportunity, yeah. like opportunity is what breeds success, you know? If you don't ever get the opportunity, you're never going to be able to succeed. But I think we, we need to reinvent here also something that we lost in the last several hundred years. It's not only that we lost ways of, of consuming or ways of, of different types of foods, but we lost the good old type of mentorship. And I really would like to say the real mentorship, a, a mentorship that is not expecting a, a revenue or something coming back, mm -hmm. but really somebody of these senior people, senior scientists offering help, offering support, but not to also be on the publications or something like that, but really mm -hmm. just for the sake of um, helping young scientists to get into, in, into uh, independent state. And I think this is something that has also to do a lot with this KPIs, the wrong KPIs and mm -hmm. the wrong incentives. So uh, at the moment it's valued and you are rated on the number of publications. So 200, 300, 400, 500. Why don't we have something where you're rated on, oh, he or she supported or out of her group or she was the mentor or he was mm -hmm. the mentor yeah, of yeah. 10 people who are now independent professors. Yeah, another mm -hmm. element of value, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. And this is something that we, I, I did want to actually raise with you. Um, and this is different to what, what I guess was the quick fire round. And this is why it's never caught on. But um, I guess you've had, you've had some, some pretty helpful mentors that have given you opportunities in the past. Do you know a few of them? And would you like to mention them? Um, because hopefully mm -hmm. they're listening. Well, and maybe they're not listening. So you can tell, you can tell us the real truth. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I can, first I could do this very generalization. Mm -hmm, yeah. It was uh, those mentors who always challenged me. Uh, and made my life a little bit harder in the first stage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for, for personal growth <laughs> so you for example you have to go you, for your own funding if you want to pursue this uh, area ah, of research okay. and so on and, and these things but this is something that I really this is a big question mark in my life so what is the right way to do mentoring to and, and how to support in, a, in, in the best way because it, it's like the same thing that you have with children so how can I support my children best so that they can be later successful in life? It's mm -hmm. of course not doing their homework, for example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have you ever done it? No. Okay. Never. No, no. no Look, no. Jan is like, I love I getting 100%. <laughs> I, no. love getting, I love getting full marks at my kids' <laughs> homework. <laughs> no, that was something that my, my husband and I were very strict in making clear, um, like, um, okay. this is your profession and we have our profession mm -hmm. if you yeah. want it, you have to take care of your stuff and have everything in order and if you don't do so it's 
That's your adventure. Yeah, this is your adventure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like that. And um, but still, of course, whenever one of our children came and had a question and didn't understand something and so on, of course, we tried to to explain or to find out what the problem is and so on. But we would have never done something like that. Um, for example, also when one of our children forgot to write down what was the homework. So, okay, now, what do you, what do, you do? do? To find out. Mm -hmm. you what could be the defend yourself. No? I will not call the mother of... Yeah, uh, yeah, friend, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you have to call there mm -hmm. to find out. Yeah. <laughs> now, I think um, what we should do and learn much earlier is then to step back. Mm -hmm. and, and this is something that I try to do right now is to do a transformation and really in also in, in kind of a mindset because what is always so puzzling to me right now is if people ask me, what do you do as research? Now, actually, I don't do really anymore. I have to really say I don't do the research anymore. What I I'm now changing into a, a status is to try to be the enabler mm. for others to develop their fields and to, uh, to build their profile and to connect people so that they do jointly their research and develop new topics. And um, what I do is maybe to give here and there some ideas, but also I don't expect them to continue these ideas, but to decide themselves if it is really, if they think it's, it makes sense. And on the other hand side, I myself um, slowly but steadily go out of the role of being the researcher myself, mm -hmm. uh, meaning that at but it, it, it doesn't mean that I'm not involved in the research anymore, because I. Do you miss it? Do you miss being? Do you miss being hands-on at the coal face? No, no. Factometer. Um, <laughs> no, because um, the spectrum is much larger. The spectrum of yeah. information and of different aspects and this is what I, I love so much and it reminds me of as I said the one of the most uh, I would say the most important person defining my life was really this teacher in school mm, yeah. because um, there was exactly this situation I obviously I need this change of perspective constantly it's like sapping when you're watching tv mm -hmm. and you have all these different types of perspectives and this is what she did in school and of course there were some pupils they hated it and some mm -hmm. who loved it and i was amongst them who loved it because as i said she was teacher for chemistry for biology for geography for history for social sciences and and so on which is unique in itself that we had such a teacher having so many different courses but actually it was just one course because she always mixed it can i quickly jump in just to ask one other question mm -hmm. um can you send me her email address and her name because it reminds me of one thing that one someone asked me once if you could choose your tutor the one mentor in the world ever they're living or dead uh, i always used to choose aristotle because he was the tutor of Alexander the Great. Now, before he was Alexander the Great's tutor, he was just called Alexander. 
and he made him great. <laughs> great. <laughs> so people think, well, I would like Alexander the Great. And I'm like, no, no, no. I want the guy who taught Alexander to become great. <laughs> <laughs> and um, to, to close this round, so to speak, or to go back to the beginning, this was a revelation being in school and she said for example due to the tectonics of the continents in this and that um, continent there was the development of, of that plant which was later utilized in the in in that in that culture for this ah. purpose oh the, the connection the is cool. that this and that religion developed and was later in this period the reason why this um, people fought uh, the, the war against that people and that's the wow. reason why we have today this social and economic system in that place. That's amazing but also that conversation is the reason we have you which is awesome. <laughs> and now in, in the job that I have now it's exactly that, like that. It's always so this cool. interconnection of all these different types of aspects. I love it. <laughs> that's that's so so cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm going to say something that's probably not going to be very popular uh, with the group, but um, I I think that is all the time we have for yeah. And maybe you can put another jumper on if you're really cold. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you so so much. And if ever we get to connect and collaborate on something in the future, please reach out to us because I promise you, we're definitely going to reach out to you. Um, but thank you so much for your time this evening. And I really, 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 really enjoyed the conversation. It's really good. And it's, yeah, it's just really a, great. a great honor. Thank you so Thanks. much. And I think there will be some people now really, really happy that we finished because my family at there are really hungry. Hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Please, will you thank them on our behalf? I will do so. And sorry that we stole you away for too long. No worries. No, I think yeah, if, if they would be starving, they, they would have come in. I think it's okay. Thank you so much. Was That's great, great, really. Thank you so much. Have a very nice evening. Thanks, you too. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.